Today's episode is sponsored by Action Heat, makers of the world's best battery-heated clothing. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels similar to a heated car seat and are powered by a rechargeable 5-volt lithium-ion battery that lasts up to 12 hours on each charge. I've been enjoying my simple base layer shirt, but they also have jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and long johns. As a special deal for our listeners, you can save 20% off your entire order by going to actionheat.com slash best to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com slash best or use the coupon code best at checkout to save 20%. Stay toasty warm while you enjoy all your outdoor activities this winter with Action Heat. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the life and times of George H.W. Bush. Clips today come from Counterspin, On the Media, Bagman, Start Making Sense, The Bradcast, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Michael Brooks Show, and Intercepted. The Daily Beast saw itself scoring easy points off TV chat show The View, chiding hosts for disagreeing in a discussion of recently deceased former President George H.W. Bush. Quote, if there was one thing it seemed most Americans could agree on this weekend, it was that former President George H.W. Bush was generally a good man who had the country's best interest at heart. And yet, somehow, the hosts of The View still found a way to turn his tribute into an argument. Close quote. Well, thus sniffed the Daily Beast, which, like numerous other outlets that engaged in ingenuous whitewash of the former president, said more about itself than about anyone else. It isn't merely that it's no part of journalists' job to stoke misty visions of powerful public figures, dead or living, asserting that George H.W. Bush was America's lovable grandpa and that only the insolent would gainsay such an image, erases the many people harmed grievously by his actions and inactions. But those bombarded with corporate media accolades about how responsible and reasonable Bush Sr. was, according to the Washington Post, how he, in USA Today's words, personified a time when careful international diplomacy was not scorned as a sign of weakness, and how, as the Chicago Tribune had it, we were all touched by his modesty, seriousness, and gentlemanly grace. You could find their antidotes, not mean-spirited, but just clear-eyed, in alternative media. Mehdi Hassan at The Intercept ran down some of Bush Sr.'s war crimes, racism, and obstruction of justice. Bush campaign director Lee Atwater eventually apologized for that infamous Willie Horton ad. Bush never did. Richard Prince at Journalism's reminded of the Clarence Thomas appointment, as well as Bush's stage-managed setup of a D.C. teenager as the face of the crack epidemic. Stephen Thrasher at The Nation wrote about the disgrace of celebrating Bush on World AIDS Day, reminding of how he chided those dealing with the disease to just change your behavior. And The Nation's Greg Grandin reminded of Bush's wars in Panama and the Persian Gulf, both remarkable for gratuitous killing. Author Nora Eisenberg elaborated at Alternet on the myth of the good Gulf War and how Bush disinformed Congress and the public to drum up support for it. 
And before you get nostalgic for media coverage that never was, look through FAIR.org. And you'll find things like Robert McNeil of the McNeil Lehrer News Hour demanding of a guest who insisted on talking in 1992 about the covert weapons pipeline set up to aid Nicaraguan Contras after Congress had prohibited direct government assistance. Quote, why does this issue remain important? Clearly, the public is bored with it. The polls all show that years ago they stopped being interested in it. Why not, as Mr. Bush describes in his pardon statement, why not bring in the healing power of the pardon and sweep it away and sweep the bitterness away? Close quote. Of course, Bush Sr. did some important positive things. The Americans with Disabilities Act leaps to mind. But media who insist on sweeping away everything else who reduced to a footnote all of those he harmed, are revealing their own view of what and who matters, which may not be histories and need not be our own. If you're a person who has TV news on all day in the background, your occasional upward glance would have marked this week's biggest small-screen story as the funeral of a 94-year-old man who was once President of the United States. He fancied himself to be a good bass singer. He was not. We'll sing for our President. He was born to power and spent his life wielding it. But if not for those four years in the White House, the cameras would never have fixed so firmly all week long on his body in transit, flying up from Houston to D.C., lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda, gracing the Washington Cathedral, lifting off from Joint Base Andrews, landing at Houston's Ellington Field, and traveling still. halting at St. Martin's Episcopal Church, rolling by motorcade to the Union Pacific Railway facility, rumbling by special train through small towns to College Station, pausing at Texas A&M University, and finally dropping anchor at the George Bush Presidential Library and Museum for eternity. It seemed to go on for a long, long time, but it was not unusual. I'm guessing that the endless stream of short, sharp shocks delivered by the news the last two years has left us too frantic for the measured pace of such events. There is a pattern to these presidential launches into the hereafter, each with its own theme and variations. The theme of this week's was summed up by Bush's Secretary of State and lifelong friend, James Baker. His wish for a kinder, gentler nation was not a cynical political slogan. It came honest and unguarded from his soul. 
That view from the podium was echoed by the pundits. I think President Bush embodied this concept of being a gentleman. We talk about the need for decency. That's exactly what this man was. A strong, silent type, brave, even lethal if necessary, but not a braggart. What George Bush recognized about America, which makes him to me the last gentleman in Washington, was that our political opponents aren't opponents at all. They're friends whom with whom we differ. Consider the letter the 41st president left in the White House for the 42nd. It was a presidential tradition he carried out with true grace, read here by the recipient. Don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. One of the stations of the crossing of a president into death is the tone and the timing of the summing up. Candid or kind? Now or later? Isn't now the best time to be forthright when more people actually care? Or do we delicately delay to spare the bereaved? Television, awash with pictures of veneration and tributes from the late president's admirers, made its choice long ago. And the timing has made it even easier in the case of George Herbert Walker Bush. I think any historical figure, the way that they are remembered is so contingent upon what historical moment they pass away in. I think it's tethered to what he is not, and what he is not is Donald Trump. And Helen Peterson is a senior culture writer and Western correspondent for BuzzFeed News. So what George H.W. Bush is being remembered for, it's echoes of how John McCain was also remembered. It's nostalgia wrapped up in eulogy. The C word is used a lot. Civility. Watching these things, you saw the recurrence of the uh, Clinton letter, the uh, civility theme. You were disturbed by it. Do we remember those in power through how other people in power remember them? Or is it also important to think about, okay, how did the least of these, how were they affected? You know, the day that I was seeing those, Saturday was also AIDS Remembrance Day, Mm -hmm. right? December 1st, every year. And so that juxtaposition led to a lot of people who were commenting on, oh, well, here was George H.W. Bush's legacy on AIDS, which is that much like Reagan, he did not do enough. He did not act soon enough. What prompted him to act was not the suffering of gay men, but, you know, when it became associated with a young boy whose association with AIDS was not through sexual activity. So people who either were directly involved in that or are mindful of, you know, the actions of ACT UP, dumping ashes on the White House lawn during H.W.'s tenure. Bringing the dead to your door. We won't take it anymore. The purpose of these people coming here is because George Bush and his administration has done nothing with our lives. So we bring our dead to you and they were determined to deposit the ashes of their loved ones on the White House steps. Part of AIDS is one of the few diseases where behavior matters. And I once called on somebody, well, change your behavior. If the behavior you're using uh, prone to cause AIDS, change the behavior. Next thing I know, one of these act-up groups is out saying, Bush ought to change his behavior. You can't talk about it rationally. Peterson observed that to the overwhelming majority of citizens, without power or direct acquaintance with the deceased, a president is not a person, but an event, one with vast and potent consequences for good or ill. So when assessing a presidency, 
kindness simply doesn't apply. If you were talking about World War II, right, and you only talked about the good things, you talked about victory in Europe, and you never talked about dropping the atomic bomb, we would say that that is not accurate to the historical record. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't say you're being mean to World War II. So what voices would you have included if you had to write the historical record of President George H.W. Bush? Um, a soldier who served in the first Gulf War, someone who lost a loved one to the AIDS crisis, someone who was sentenced under the war on drugs, but then also, you know, someone whose life was really changed by the Americans with Disabilities Act, mm -hmm. or who, after Bush signed the Ryan White act into law that made, you know, receiving AIDS treatment possible to them. Mm -hmm. So there's a full cornucopia <laughs> that's not just people who have covered them or other presidents or senators and that sort of thing. The piece that I saw that really did a good job of this is David Greenberg's piece in Politico. Well, I think obituaries are often the first place that we turn when we want to learn about a historical figure. David Greenberg is a professor of history, journalism, and media studies at Rutgers University and contributing editor to Politico magazine. You know, we're not engaged in a discourse with the Bush family right now. We're engaged in a discourse with the American people and new generations who may be learning about President Bush's presidency and career for the first time. Okay, you wrote a book about President Nixon. You watched the obituaries. You read them. You saw them when he died. He's the, about as complex a character as you could encounter. With Richard Nixon, even more than with George Bush, you know, there was, I would call, almost a whitewash at the time of his funeral. You were the chief news editor for Newsweek in Washington. Richard Nixon didn't like you very much. Give us your first thoughts uh, when he died. You knew it was coming. Sadness, Peter. Uh, Richard Nixon accomplished a lot in his political career, opening the door to China, easing the tensions uh, with the Soviet Union, peace in Vietnam, and brought a lot of good to the world on the domestic front. Uh, he was very successful as a president. And the tragedy of Richard Nixon is that most of all, he's going to be remembered from Watergate. It was sort of hard to imagine from hearing some of the eulogies why this man has gone down in history in disgrace as the first president ever to resign, as someone who committed constitutional crimes and abused the powers of his office. It was almost just, oh, it's just one part of the story. So what was the main story in the eulogies of George Herbert Walker Bush that you think was left out? The story we have been hearing is a man of great decency and bipartisanship. But in fact, that decency, which no doubt was part of who Bush was, most of the time lost out to political cynicism. When he wants to win in a Texas Senate race in 1964, he is denouncing the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is one of the great achievements of modern politics. He embraced supply-side economics that he had called voodoo economics during the campaign. 
That's right. And he also threw aside his uh, support for abortion rights because Reagan wanted him to. He dropped his support for the Equal Rights Amendment for women because Reagan wanted him to. So I see a pattern of repeatedly subordinating what we might call his nobler impulses, or at least his more liberal or moderate impulses, to political expediency. I won't even bother mentioning the low of the uh, Willie Horton ad during the campaign. It's probably been played ad nauseum at this point. Bush liked to say, oh, yeah, during the campaign, I could get nasty. But once I was elected, you know, it was all pure governance from there on out. Well, it's never like that for Bush or for any president, that the pressures of politics weigh on particular decisions. He wasn't standing up for this older strain of republicanism. He was sacrificing it in the short term in the hope, perhaps, of being able to implement it in the long term, but that long term never came. What happened instead was the concessions that he made to the far right ended up only empowering the far right. Greenberg notes that such vaunted Bush achievements as the Americans with Disabilities Act and amendments to the Clean Air Act were concessions. Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. He wrote that George H.W. Bush often slunk aside to create space for far-right ideologues and practitioners of personal destruction, and that it shouldn't surprise us to see that others made of far more malignant stuff than he have now taken over that space. Where does a president or a powerful politician leave us? That is the essence of a legacy, and in this particular case, the role of eulogy. An event like a president is not a subject for public eulogizing like a film star. He, so far he, no longer belongs to his family or friends. A president, by dint of the power he wields, belongs to us all, and especially, as Peterson says, the least among us. Anything less betrays history, our chance to learn from it, choose better, and do better. need to tell you that 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights, but have you ever wondered how human rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria, to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, to the caging of children on U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They are an independent, non-profit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org best to make a donation and support this vital work around the world. When you do, not only is your gift tax-deductible, it will be 
matched dollar for dollar until 2019. That means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of people who need it most. Again, that's hrw.org slash best. And thanks. Monday, April 30th. Uh, resignation day. In April 1973, Richard Nixon's White House Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman, suddenly resigned over his role in Watergate. When he did, the man Nixon named as his replacement, his new Chief of Staff, was General Al Haig. Press Secretary Ron Ziegler said General Haig's appointment is an interim one, but he said Haig already is on the job carrying out most of the duties H.R. Haldeman used to perform. When Al Haig took over that job, one of those duties that he inherited was a White House plan that was already in action to obstruct and try to shut down a criminal investigation of the vice president. Al Haig took the job, and he didn't miss a beat. Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew had come up with a plan to get to George Bell, the U.S. attorney leading that investigation. And they would get to him through his brother, a Republican U.S. senator named Glenn Bell. It was Haig's job to make that happen. And again, we know that because there are tapes like this one where you can hear Nixon and Haig in the Oval Office putting together a plan to have a White House advisor named Mel Laird be the middleman. Now, the tape here is a little rough, but you'll hear Nixon trying to figure out with Haig how to do this secretly, how to do this in a way where Nixon's fingerprints weren't on it. Nixon starts here by saying, I think you better talk to Mel. Nixon says there, I can't have it put out that I was trying to fix the case. And Haig says, no, no, you cannot do this. Al Haig then lays out what exactly they want this senator, Glenn Bell, to do for them. If Glenn Bell can get his brother, who's the U.S. attorney, who we appointed, who's a Republican, but who's turned this thing over to two fanatical prosecutors, if he just sits in on them and supervises this. In other words, what U.S. Attorney George Bell needs to do is sit in on these fanatical prosecutors in his office who are taking this investigation to places we don't want it to go. Nixon and Haig are devising this plan in secret to interfere with this ongoing investigation. They then start putting this plan into action. But the middleman they end up using, the guy who they drag into this obstruction scheme, ultimately isn't Mel Laird. Who they end up using for this obstruction effort is the chairman of the Republican National Committee at the time, a man by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. The future president of the United States, George Bush, gets enlisted in this effort to reach out to Senator Glenn Bell to have him pressure his brother to shut down this investigation. Listen to this phone call between Richard Nixon and Al Haig. The audio here is a a little bit distorted, but the first voice here is Nixon, and he's talking to Haig about enemies of the White House who are now going after everybody. It's 
amazing, isn't it? By golly, the way they start to go after everybody, don't they? Yeah, they're after everybody. The vice president's been very nervous. He called me. I know. Uh, I know, and uh, and did you decide to have Harlow try to? Well, uh, he isn't here. He isn't here, so I did it to George Bush on the first run. That's good. That's good. I did it through George Bush on the first run. This didn't ever stick to George H.W. Bush, maybe because these audio tapes have just been collecting dust for the last four decades. But George Bush was brought in to a potentially criminal effort organized and directed by the then President of the United States, Richard Nixon, to obstruct an ongoing investigation into his vice president. And George Bush did it. U.S. Attorney George Bell ended up donating his papers to Frostburg State University in Maryland. And if you go to those archives, you can now see an official memo to file that U.S. Attorney George Bell wrote that summer of 1973. In that memo to file, it is made quite clear that after the White House came up with this plan, George H.W. Bush did, in fact, contact U.S. Senator Glenn Bell. And he tried to have Senator Glenn Bell get word to his little brother, the U.S. attorney, about this investigation. This is what he wrote in the file. With respect to conversations with my brother Glenn, the discussions were most superficial and very guarded. He occasionally mentioned to me the names of persons who had been to see him or who had called him with respect to this investigation. Names of persons that I remember him telling me about included... Vice President Agnew, and George Bush. Well, Bush 41 has gotten extremely favorable obituaries. Almost everybody is saying he was a good president. They seem to be contrasting him to another Republican president. Yes, I think if we make a list of people who would benefit by comparison with Donald Trump, we wouldn't have time to go through it on uh, on this podcast <laughs> or on uh, the, the 20,000 subsequent podcasts. So it, to say it's a low bar to clear is an insult to low bars. <laughs> Well, the the standard approach is to start with the good things that Bush did and then mention that not everything was good. Here, we'd like to do it the other way around. What would you say is the worst thing that George Bush 41 did as president? Well, a number of things. Certainly uh, encouraging the wars in Central America, the uh, consequences of which uh, we experience this very day with uh, migrant caravans out of Central America. Certainly his mode of getting elected, which was a scabrous way of playing the race card and the Willie Horton ad, and Bush always seemed to sort of divorce himself from from, from that. Uh, you know, oh, that was mere politics, didn't count. The ends justify the means. But uh, the means became really the heart and soul of the Republican Party. The, the Willie Horton ads, uh, Michael Dukakis uh, let this guy out, the revolving door of uh, African-American presumable crim- presumably criminals coming out of jail. This, this, this uh, was already becoming 
uh, stock and trade of the uh, modern Republican Party. It is now virtually the uh, sum and substance of the modern Republican Party. But uh, that was how Bush uh, vilified Michael Dukakis, who, let us remember, actually led in the polls in 1988, going into Labor Day, and then, and then came the vilification. Let me point to two other things that I think are the worst things he's done. First was nominating Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court. Every time there's a Republican majority, we can thank George Bush for his contributions of the man who's probably the most right-wing of all Supreme Court justices today. And I would say the second worst thing that Bush did was his last act as president, which was pardoning many of the Iran-Contra crew in order to block investigation of his own role in breaking the law. That that points the way for Donald Trump to follow the example of George H.W. Bush by pardoning the people who might testify against him. Could you review what this is about? Yes, in December of, of 92, after he had been defeated uh, the previous month by Bill Clinton for re-election, uh, just uh, uh, less than a month before he himself was to leave office, Bush gave uh, full pardons to six former Reagan administration officials, former Defense Secretary Cap Weinberger, President Assistant uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, National Security Advisor uh, Robert McFarlane, all of whom had been indicted and or convicted of criminal charges by the independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, who had been called in to be the independent prosecutor of the Iran-Contra scandal. I think we just need to remind people what the Iran-Contra scandal was about. Reagan, as president, had armed the Contras, a right-wing army that was trying to overthrow the left-wing government of Nicaragua. And then Congress passed a law banning all American aid to the Contras. The Reagan people nevertheless continued to provide arms to the Contras with money they got from selling arms to the Iranians, who, by the way, had been holding Americans hostage the news of this secret deal got out, and that's why the special prosecutor was appointed to prosecute the people who had broken the law prohibiting aid to the Contras. Right, and of course Reagan himself said he didn't uh, know anything about it, and if, you know, that, that might have stretched plausibility, but it was certainly characterologically plausible for Reagan. Not so for Bush. Uh, there were notes that Cap Weinberger had taken in uh, which mentioned that Bush was involved in this, that he'd been in meetings about this, uh, and that Lawrence Walsh learned that Bush's private diary uh, might have had some material on this as well. But by pardoning Weinberger, as well as the other people who had been convicted, Bush essentially got himself uh, an out. So what Bush did here, just to summarize, Bush pardoned Weinberger, preventing a trial in which evidence of his own involvement in the scheme to break the law would have come out. And after that, special, the special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, declared, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed, close quote, as a result of Bush pardoning the people who could have testified against him revealing his own role in this. The parallels to Trump actually are a lot closer than a lot of people realize, I think. Sure. I mean, uh, there's no question that Manafort and maybe uh, Mr. Cohen and uh, various other folks who are sort of twisting in the wind at the moment, like uh, General Flynn, his brief, short-lived national security advisor, all these folks uh, and more probably have 
material on uh, on Trump and the uh, connections of his son and uh, what he what he knew about Russian uh, subversion of the election. And you know, the one way to uh, uh, get rid of this, uh, well, there are a couple ways. I mean, he could fire Mueller and see what the consequences of that could be probably impeachment by the incoming Democratic House, or he could uh, pardon uh, Manafort and uh, uh, some other folks uh, and uh, see if he can skate by on that. So it, I think it really is a, a pretty plausible parallel to what uh, George H.W. did in the waning days of his presidency. One last thing that George Bush did that really was good, when he ran in 1980 against Reagan in the Republican uh, primaries, he called Reaganomics voodoo economics. That was a great thing. It was, and whoever was his speechwriter, or if he came up with him, came up with it himself, all power to that person. Explain yeah. what voodoo economics was. Reagan was uh, advocating uh, supply side economics that you could hugely cut taxes and you wouldn't run a deficit because the economy would become so massively productive that more taxes would flow in just as a result of that. That, of course, has been proven, was proven false during the Reagan presidency and every subsequent Republican presidency, Bush's son's presidency, and, uh, and the Trump presidency and the, the tax cut of, uh, of a year ago. You know, you lower taxes on the rich, and the deficit simply grows, and uh, th- there's no evidence that it really particularly boosts the economy. So, voodoo indeed. Even though... Bush told the truth about Reaganomics. He nevertheless got the Repu- got the Republican vice presidential nomination. How did that happen? Well, Reagan represented at that point a faction of the party, not the entire party. And Bush was in some ways at that point in 1980 the most plausible representative of uh you know the last gasp of 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 more o-line republicanism plus bush agreed to go along with whatever reagan said that's the precondition for being vice president so it was both the last gasp and perhaps more accurately the surrender of o-line center-right republicanism when bush agreed to uh, accept reagan's offer Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Errett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use promo code LEFT. Since I'm I'm not a fan personally of Dancing on Graves, and as George H. W. Bush was the last Republican president to at least pretend 
to give a damn about the environment, I I think that is worth noting, at least, his environmental legacy on that score, since it, too, is such a contrast from Republicans since then, including his son, George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the United States, and, of course, uh, couldn't be a bigger contrast from the current occupant of the White House, Desi Doyen, uh, who is our co-host on the Green News Report and, yes. of course, our producer every day. Uh, thoughts on uh, George W. George H. W. Bush and his environmental legacy? Well, there were a lot of things um, that I think are notable to remember. Historical facts, things that uh, President George H. W. Bush, Bush 41, put through that uh, actually we rely on today. For example, remember that National Climate Assessment that came out? last week, that was a law passed by George H.W. Bush that required that National Climate Assessment to come out every four years. From the administration, uh, whether you have a climate denier president like Donald Trump or not, they had to put out this report, and it was a startling report. Oh, it was a staggering report that detailed that, yes, climate change is already here. It is already impacting the economy negatively, and those costs are going to skyrocket unless we take action now. So we can thank uh, George H.W. Bush for that, for requiring Donald Trump's administration all these years later to put out a report like that. Exactly. And Bush 41, George H.W. Bush, signed the International Montreal Protocol of 1990. That's the first ever international climate treaty that went through the United Nations. It uh, finished the process started by President Ronald Reagan. It phased out the use of chemicals that were depleting the ozone layer uh, that, you know, that mm-hmm. protects the all life on Earth from the sun's radiation. So we kind of need the ozone layer. Um, so remember the ozone hole and all that? That mm-hmm. was caused by chemicals used in refrigeration and other applications like uh, hydrochlorofluorocarbons and chlorofluorocarbons stuff like that. So 30 years later, show off. <laughs> 30 years later because of the law that um, the the treaty, the Montreal Protocol that Bush 41 signed and got the the Senate to approve, mm-hmm. um, because of that, the ozone hole is finally very slowly closing up. And so that's a successful action taken internationally. He also signed into law the landmark expansion of the Clean Air Act of mm-hmm. 1990. Yep. And that was huge. An- another measure that Donald Trump is ruining today. Oh, yeah. I that's suspect. been tripping yeah. up Republicans ever since. Yep. Thank goodness, I have to say, this this huge expansion of the, ni- of the Clean Air Act added all these amendments in 19. 19- that um, allowed the EPA, it actually required the EPA to regulate these ozone-depleting chemicals. It also curbed three threats to public health, acid rain, uh, urban air pollution, and toxic air emissions. And this is the biggest part, I think, uh, something we were talking about Mm off-air. The 1990 Clean Air Act amendments also included really broad language that authorized the EPA administrator to regulate Air pollution, which may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. In other words, stuff back that, you know, when they originally passed the Clean Air Act in 1970, it was basically intended to cover things we didn't know about yet in 1970. It was basically intended to say, hey, if science shows that something should come up in the future, that's going to be a problem, like, say, 
climate change, yeah. then the EPA is authorized to act if it is found to endanger gives, public health. It gives the uh, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the authority <laughs> to protect the environment, even if there was not specific things that were laid out, uh, this chemical or that gas or exactly. whatever. Uh, and that, that so-called endangerment finding, if the EPA finds something to be dangerous, they may then regulate it. That uh, that measure, uh, underscored by uh, George H.W. Bush and his expansion of the Clean Air Act, is what led his own son's administration, George W. Bush's administration, to not open an email from the EPA for years because the EPA had discovered that, yes, in fact, uh, carbon dioxide was a greenhouse gas that was causing climate change, dangerous uh, climate change. That would definitely endanger public health and welfare. So that endangerment finding, yes, that has been the basis for many acts uh, through Congress. And uh, for example, California uses the endangerment finding of 1990, the uh, the, the law of the Clean Air Act to to as its justification for increasing mileage requirements for cars mm-hmm. and trucks. The reasons that our current cars and trucks get as much mileage as they do today is because of California, because of that 1990 Clean Air Act amendment. So that is what the Trump administration is trying to undo. And uh, of course, you know, Trump and the Republican Party are working very hard right now to make both pollution worse yeah. for the public and to make climate change absolutely worse. So he everybody. was really one of the last, Repu- well, the last Republican, certainly in the White House, uh, between then and now, yes, to actually have really any kind of environmental legacy that is worth lauding. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and that yeah. doesn't mean he was perfect by any stretch no. of the imagination. You know, let's be clear that there was a lot that he could have done to uh, set us in motion on climate change and set us in motion on cutting our emissions that he did not do. And we are going to pay for that in our carbon debt later on and now with climate change. But he did do these very important things. I went back and poked around at some of the reporting on him from when he was actually in office. And I'm going to read from a New York Times article dated June 9th, 1991. Headline, when the subject is civil rights, there are two George Bushes by reporter Stephen A. Holmes. And it says, George Bush, the man whose presidential campaign benefited from the now notorious Willie Horton commercials, also has the distinction of having appointed the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Colin Powell. He will be remembered as a president who vetoed a civil rights bill in 1990 while making a point of donating half the proceeds from his autobiography to the United Negro College Fund. Images of Mr. Bush's relations with blacks collide at odd angles, revealing no coherent pattern other than contradiction. And combined with his flip-flops on issues like abortion, voodoo economics, and no new taxes, his approach to race raises a broader question. Is there no coherent pattern or no coherent value system? And I'm going to continue a little further on in this article. 
It says, as a candidate for the Senate from Texas in 1964, Mr. Bush came out against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the landmark law that ended segregated lunch counters, restrooms, movie theaters, and other public accommodations, and made employment discrimination illegal. In the campaign, Mr. Bush said the law was, quote, politically inspired and is bad legislation in that it transcends the Constitution, unquote. Then it says three years ago, that would have been 1988, writing in his autobiography about his his successful 1966 race for the house, <clears throat> for the house, Mr. Bush lamented that it was quote both puzzling and disappointed that he attracted so few black votes. And the article adds, Mr. Bush didn't mention his opposition to the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. So that was from the New York Times in 1991 when Bush was president. Later that year, 91, he did sign a revised version of the Job Discrimination Civil Rights Bill that he had vetoed in 1990. I say I am very pleased with the, your persistence and the fact that uh, we have a piece of civil rights legislation that will guarantee against discrimination in the workplace. In 1991, after signing that Civil Rights Act, he nominated Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court and said this. Judge Thomas's life is a model for all Americans, and he's earned the right uh, to sit on this nation's highest court, and I am very proud indeed uh, to nominate him for this position. So what we always hear, Juan, uh, these days about the Thomas confirmation process is the Anita Hill sexual harassment allegations. But what about nominating such a conservative African-American on race issues, which Thomas was and is, to succeed Thurgood Marshall of all people? Why did he think that was somehow respectful of black America? an interesting question because I think the premise really is that there's a black seat on the Supreme Court, that Thurgood Marshall had been there, had been established, the idea that, you know, you could have a black person on the Supreme Court, Marshall being the first African-American justice. And so here comes Marshall's retirement, and Bush is looking for someone black to put on the court. I think that, you know, he was considering other people, but really wanted a young person, <clears throat> excuse me, who could stay on the court for many years. Bill Coleman had been, was a well-known Republican, had been Secretary of Transportation in the Ford administration and the like, much well-respected, um, but older. Uh, and the idea was not only that you get a younger person, but that you don't go for a moderate like someone like a Bill Coleman, uh, but that you get someone who has some conservative credentials. And it's interesting to me because I covered this White House that Thomas was often seen as vacillating, Brian, as not strong enough in terms of a lot of the Reagan conservatism, but certainly in terms of the spectrum of black political thought, he was on the right. I mean, it's interesting. Thomas is a guy who's a big follower of Malcolm X, but again, it's sort of black nationalist, self-sufficiency, personal responsibility, anger, uh, and he comes out of that, but he was 100% with the conservative agenda when it came to opposition to, for example, quotas that Eleanor mentioned earlier. And so you also get, uh, and we didn't talk about this, Bush's support for the war on drugs, uh, making a famous speech, I believe it was like 8990, in which a young black man is arrested in Lafayette Square, set up basically 
I don't think I'm going off the farm here by saying he, he was set up by the Secret Service and the police so that Bush could hold up a bag of white crack cocaine, he said in the Oval Office address. And that fed billions in, uh, into the continuing war on drugs that has had a terrible consequence for so many, but specifically in the black community. Um, and then comes the Thomas nomination, which, again, the idea was to cement in place in that black seat, not a liberal, but a, in this case, a, a far-right uh, conservative as a black man. And yet, Juan, the Times article from 1991 that I read from said he had a positive approval rating among black Americans at the time, over 50 percent. Uh, that was just before the Thomas nomination do you know if that changed it or what the source of his popularity among African-Americans was, considering everything we've talked about so far? Oh, yeah. I think that he was seen, you know, in black America as a, a kind of Connecticut Yankee liberal on civil rights issue. And not only that, unlike what we see from, example, President Trump, he had black people around him. Uh, he, he reached out to black groups. He addressed black groups. Uh, there was no sense of I am going after black America, he seemed to be the kind of Republican that was willing to do business and embrace black America on many levels. Here he is announcing a major initiative on the war on drugs in 1988 at the White House. Directly with you, the American people, all of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Drugs have strained our faith in our system of justice. Our courts, our prisons, our legal system are stretched to the breaking point. The social costs of drugs are mounting. In short, Drugs are sapping our strength as a nation. Turn on the evening news or pick up the morning paper and you'll see what some Americans know just by stepping out their front door. Our most serious problem today is cocaine and in particular crack. <laughs> Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. Tonight, I'll tell you how many Americans are using illegal drugs. I will present to you our national strategy to deal with every aspect of this threat. And I will ask you to get involved in what promises to be a very difficult fight. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake. This stuff is poison. In particularly crack. I wonder what I'm signifying when I say that. There's an amazing story behind 
how the crack was delivered to the White House, which we're going to tell you in a couple of minutes. And of course, this overlaps with the cold open involving the, the invasion of Panama. But let's focus on a historical pattern and quote unquote looking the other way. Going back to the 1960s and 1970s, when the United States was complicit and the CIA was complicit with, uh, in Vietnam and Laos with right-wing paramilitaries who were also heroin traffickers, there has always been an overlap between the sort of covert U.S. foreign policy and people involved in the drug trade, particularly in the 1980s as well, of course, but also in Afghanistan and Mexico today. In 1980s, in the George H.W. Bush era, the United States partnered with the Contras. The Contras were a far-right Nicaraguan paramilitary that were fighting the democratic uprising of the Sandinistas. They were known for murder, rape, torturing, and killing even nuns in a Catholic country. And rampant human rights abuses, abuses so rampant that the United States Congress under democratic leadership actually cut off funds for them, which people within the Reagan administration found a clever workaround on with the brainchild of Oliver North, which was illegally sell weapons to the Iranians and funnel the profits through drug cartel banks back to the Nicaraguan Contras. This is something that would certainly implicate or involve the vice president's office. Of course, we don't know all of the facts of the case because all of the major players in Iran-Contra were pardoned when George H.W. Bush became president in a massive uh, upholding of norms, which, of course, are under threat by Donald Trump. Now, in addition to that, Panama was supported by the United States. Manuel Noriega was a prime conduit for laundering drug money from all cartels and organizations across Latin America. Tight, close relationship with the United States until all of a sudden in the late 80s, we needed to have a war with him and remove him from the chessboard with, of course, serious consequences for not only civilian casualties in Panama, but a much more trigger-happy American public, which in a completely propagandized war effort was like, oh, this is really easy. You can just go to a third world place and get rid of a bad guy. The United the U.S. role in uh, the drug trade also connected the CIA with the Mujahideen in the 1980s. This line, this sort of pipeline of heroin money and poppy field money in Afghanistan exists today. Afghanistan, with which we are still there, still training, still regularly killing civilians in a self-licking ice cream cone that implicates the U.S. military, our intelligence apparatus, the Pakistani intelligence apparatus, the Indian and Afghan intelligence and military services is essentially a proxy for a heroin corridor drug war. So, and and last but not least, El Chapo is in trial in Brooklyn right now, and it has formally been agreed to in court to not release evidence to the public that would implicate senior American officials as well as most likely the DEA for looking the other way uh, while El Chapo's ca cartel operated in exchange for information on other cartels. Not only was George H.W. Bush involved in all of this as head of the CIA, as the vice president, but there's also the other pattern. Going back to Richard Nixon, who, of course, launched the war on drugs and the major escalation and attacks on inner cities and expansion of the prison industrial complex through Reagan, Bush and Clinton and Bush Jr., which is that while 
drugs flowed in the United States partially, not entirely, but partially as a result of U.S. foreign policy turbocharging cartels, cartels across the globe. Then there would be a moral panic in the United States, which was racialized and used as a justification for regressive, abusive, and systemically racist and systemically classist and systemically any other kind of evilist you can imagine policies which targeted poor and people of color communities. Because, of course, that speech is synchronized with a whole policy set that expanded prisons, gave police more power, and militarized even further the drug war. So when you reflect on George H.W. Bush's legacy, I'm a guy who believes in complexity, taking everything in. And it's nice that he wrote Bill Clinton a nice note. And it's nice that he was thought that Barack Obama was born in the United States. And it was nice that he had a dry, waspy sense of humor. But it was not nice to vote against the Civil Rights Act. And it was not nice to invade Panama. And it was certainly not nice to work with the fucking Contras. As the sun set over Washington Monday, President Bush's coffin arrived at the Capitol. A hero's welcome heralded by cannons and a 21-gun salute. The national religion of the United States is American exceptionalism. And we are now in the midst of a grotesque canonization of one of its imperial saints, George Herbert Walker Bush. And right now, at this moment, Every media outlet in this country, every politician, Democrat and Republican, is engaged in collective eulogy based on lies. Lies about who Bush was, lies about his policies, lies about the mass killing he oversaw during his life at the highest levels of power in the U.S. government. George Herbert Walker Bush was an unrepentant war criminal who spent the overwhelming majority of his life making the world a worse place, a more dangerous place, and he leaves behind a global trail of tears, of bloodshed, of death and destruction. His legacy can be seen in the poverty and corruption of Central and Latin America. It can be seen in the never-ending killing fields of Iraq. It can be seen in the international criminals that he pardoned after Iran-Contra and the systematic violence of the so-called war on drugs. This legacy can be seen in the scourge of AIDS, the presence of a sexual harasser, Clarence Thomas, on the Supreme Court, who in a sick irony of history replaced Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice and a noble man. George Herbert Walker Bush came from a powerful family, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth to a father who cozied up to Nazis, who desecrated the grave of the indigenous leader Geronimo, and whose businesses contributed to the imperial agenda to force the poor of the world into indentured servitude for the powerful. This is the eulogy that George Herbert Walker Bush should be receiving this week. Instead, we have this. 
Throughout his long life, George Bush was admired as a man of decency, modesty, and uncommon achievement. Values that, to the end, reflected what was most important to him, his family. I just want to get up into heaven, and I don't get there by bragging on myself. My mother told me that years ago. George Herbert Walker Bush today is being remembered as a great man and as a gentle soul. The 41st president honored today not just as a statesman, but as a father and neighbor. The Houston Symphony paying tribute to his love of colorful socks. The U.S. and international news media are engaging in sick propaganda. Leave the stories about how classy Bush supposedly was, how cool his marriage was, how he built a father-son relationship with Bill Clinton, how he was nice to Barack Obama, how he always wore those funny socks. Leave all of that to the family in their private memorials. But for the rest of us, the rest of the world, we must remember that his incalculable crimes were committed in public from the highest chambers of power in the most dominant nation in the world. The accounting for his crimes should also be done in public. But no, we're told we have to have respect. We're told that it's not the time to discuss any of this. We're told that we must pretend that he was not a mass murderer with so much blood on his hands. You know what? Donald Trump doesn't even have enough time left in his life to commit even a fraction of the international crimes that Bush carried out during his decades in power, whether it was at the helm of the CIA or as vice president or as president. Not even close. Journalists today believe that they're so brave in calling out Trump's lies, in investigating his real estate deals, in probing his associates. And yet none of them have the spine to accurately describe the well-documented, indisputable crimes committed by George Herbert Walker Bush. What we're witnessing is a powerful media class and an elite political class whitewashing the life of a man who used his various positions not to make the world better, but to wage unthinkable wars, to undermine democratic movements, to kill innocent people, to orchestrate coups and invasions. And the reason this doesn't happen, that we don't talk about this, is because it's a sacrilege in the religion of American exceptionalism. When an unarmed young black man is shot dead by the police, the media is often flooded with stories about how they were troubled kids, or they had criminal records, or they had used drugs, or they had run-ins with the law. The pictures used in these stories are often ones where these dead black men are presented as thugs or scary. Journalists probed the life of Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Eric Garner. News organizations did everything in their power to smear these people in death with absolutely no regard for their families, no respect for their humanity. If George Herbert Walker Bush was treated the same way as these black men, it would take months of nonstop 24-7 coverage to even begin to describe the tip of the iceberg of the unforgivable deeds that George Bush committed. Why? Because he committed his crimes as president of the United States and the nature of his crimes was imperial. He did it with bombs and tanks and invasions and coups. In watching the gross hagiography on display this week, I'm reminded of the quote from Voltaire. It is forbidden to kill. Therefore, all murderers are punished unless they kill in large numbers and to the sound of trumpets. That is who George Herbert Walker Bush was, a man who killed in large numbers to the sound of trumpets. And that's why all of these powerful news organizations, all of these Democrats and Republicans, are engaging in willful lies, 
intentional whitewashing. It's sickening to watch all of this and to remember the countless lives that this man was responsible for ending across the globe. Can you imagine watching a memorial service for a warmonger leader of another nation? And if instead of their vast crimes, we were bombarded with stories of their funny socks and their sense of humor and how good of a husband or father they were? The pictures of their service dog next to a casket? For Bush's victims across the world, that's their reality right now. That's their reality this week. The most powerful people in the United States are collectively pretending that none of it happened. You want to talk about disrespecting the dead? Let's talk about the more than 400 people that Bush incinerated in a Baghdad bomb shelter in February of 1991. How does this celebration of their murder and Bush's sense of humor and funny socks feel to their families? Bush dropped nearly 90,000 tons of bombs on Iraq. Tens of thousands of people were killed in that war, and hundreds of thousands of civilians died from its effects. And let us remember the so-called highway of death, when Bush authorized the mass slaughter of retreating Iraqi military units, bombing thousands of vehicles and killing untold numbers of soldiers in retreat out of Kuwait. Our mission was to go up and stop the retreating forces as they left Kuwait City. And he said, put some hate in your heart, and he'll be waiting here when we get back. When we took off, we'd expected to see convoys leaving Kuwait City, but we weren't prepared for the magnitude, the number of vehicles that were on the ground that we saw when we broke out under the clouds. We all know that George Herbert Walker Bush's son, George W. Bush, lied the U.S. into the invasion and occupation of Iraq. But it was a lesson that he learned from his dad. In the build-up to the 1991 Gulf War, Powerful American public relations firms orchestrated a campaign to convince the world that Iraqi soldiers had gone into Kuwaiti hospitals and killed babies in incubators and stabbed pregnant women. This campaign, based entirely on fiction, culminated with a bipartisan congressional hearing, supposedly on human rights, and it featured a young Kuwaiti girl who fought back tears as she claimed to have been a volunteer at a hospital in Kuwait where she witnessed these atrocities. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. That was horrifying. But the American public was not told at the time of this congressional hearing was that this girl was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. The whole thing was orchestrated by these American PR firms, and this girl had witnessed none of these fake crimes. But the lies were repeated over and over as Bush made his case for war. These lies were also promoted by Representative Henry Hyde and other lawmakers on the floor of Congress. Now is the time to check the aggression of this ruthless dictator whose troops have bayoneted pregnant women and have ripped babies from their incubators in Kuwait. President George Herbert Walker Bush used the false incubator story at least six times in public as he pushed for war against Iraq. And they had kids in incubators and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. Both U.S. wars against Iraq were based on lies, 
and both were run by presidents named Bush. If you speak honestly about who George H.W. Bush really was, then you by necessity will be indicting the history, the politics, the legacy of the United States. If you speak honestly about Bush, then the myth of American exceptionalism is laid bare. We've just heard clips today starting with both Counterspin and on the media arguing for a more clear-eyed retrospective on public figures in the media. Bagman, the Rachel Maddow podcast about Nixon's vice president, Sparrow Agnew, highlighted the connection George H.W. Bush had to Nixon's attempts to obstruct justice. Start Making Sense explored how Bush paved the way for the modern GOP and how the Iran-Contra pardons he issued stopped an investigation that likely would have implicated himself. The Bradcast looked at Bush's legacy on environmental issues. The Brian Lehrer Show looked at Bush's complicated history on civil rights and race relations. The Michael Brooks Show broke down Bush's role in the war on drugs. And finally, we just heard Jeremy Scahill's commentary on Intercepted, detailing some of the finer points of Bush's foreign policy work. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips going into more detail on the propaganda campaign that led us into the first Gulf War under H.W. Bush and some of his dirtier dealings with death squads and dictators. There won't be any additional mentions of his socks. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, my name's Harry. I work in New York. I'm a software engineer, and I work in ads, which is an area that is often criticized for privacy. And I just wanted to say that Simon's comments about the spectrum of privacy and transparency and how we need privacy for the vulnerable and transparency from the powerful was a really excellent way of putting the feelings that I had had. And um, I hope to uh, maybe you know, use that when I'm thinking about trade-offs that I make in my job. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, I just want to leave you with some thoughts that are completely unrelated to any topic we've been discussing, any episode topics, no questions have come in that have spurred this to mind, but I had an idea recently, and I think it's a good one, and I want to share it with you. Basically, I want to change the way people debate, especially in the media, but it's really applicable across the board. I think we need to fundamentally change the way we have people debate between more or less two ideas, the, the traditional uh, cable news style of, you know, one person on one side, one on the other, 
debating their points. What I desperately want to see happen is for moderators in an instance like that, or if you're, I mean, as I said, it's across the board. It could happen to you. You could just be having a discussion with someone you disagree with and, and you could do the same thing. Uh, what I want to happen in that situation is for people to ask someone not to explain their own point of view, but to explain their opponent's point of view. So to back up, I got this idea. Uh, I mean, it came to me recently, but it was the seed was planted years ago. There was this show, Decode DC. Uh, the host at the end of its run, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but the host at the end of the run of the show is this guy who used to be a lobbyist. And he told this story once, and I don't remember any of the context or details, so I can just vaguely paraphrase his story. And he said that when he was a lobbyist, he would go in and he would speak to a legislator. And he would, of course, make the point that he wanted to make. He would push the idea his client wanted him to push. But he would also do something else. He would say, okay, now listen, the other lobbyist from the other side is going to come in, and they're going to talk to you about this issue too. And here's what they're going to say. And then he would lay out the argument that the other side was going to make and then explain why that counter-argument was wrong. And the, the, the details of, of, you know, whatever he was discussing doesn't matter at all. It's completely applicable across the board. Imagine how much more valid of an argument you have when you can demonstrate that you understand the other side completely. Because think of the alternative. A, a person's credibility falls to pieces if they can't explain the position of their opponent. So here's an example. I can explain both the idea behind trickle-down economics and why it doesn't make any sense, and I can therefore also uh, explain the concept of trickle-up economics or, or uh, supply-side versus demand-side. I can explain both, and I can explain which of those makes sense. Now, imagine you ask someone who is an advocate for trickle-down economics, and they can explain why trickle-down economics would work. But they can't explain the reverse. They can't explain the concept of trickle-up or demand-side economics. Why in the world would you listen to anything that person said? That Their credibility goes out the window immediately. So in a world in which all of our news is conveyed via debate, the surest and quickest way to ferret out whether someone has credibility or not, is to ask them to explain their opponent's position and then, of course, give them the opportunity to explain why they disagree with that position. But if they can't even explain it, if they can't explain what their opponent thinks, well, then we know we shouldn't listen to anything they have to say because they, they're arguing against something that they themselves don't even understand. Now, obviously, there's more than just two sides to every debate, and, and there's a, you know, a rainbow of gray in between the black and the white, but asking a question like that first gets you so much closer to being able to have a, a reasonable discussion. It's amazing, because you're, you're going to get one of three answers. You ask someone to explain their opponent's point of view, they're either not going to be able to do it, in which case they lose their credibility. They're going to refuse to do it, in which case they lose their credibility, 
or they are able to do it, in which case, all of a sudden, you realize, here is a person with which I can have a conversation, because we, we agree on some degree of facts. And, and then if, if someone actually understands your position and still disagrees with you, then that ground is fertile for, for really getting somewhere, really uh, finding some deeper understanding. So that's the call I'm, I'm putting out there to, to all the members of the media, anyone who asks anyone a question, anyone who engages in any kind of political debate of any kind, actually even non-political debate, anyone who disagrees with anyone else ever, uh, make sure, first of all, that you are able to describe your opponent's position and insist that your opponent be able to describe yours. And if you're moderating, then just make sure everyone in the conversation uh, understands everyone else's position as well. If we could do that one thing, make that one change, I think our news media would be 10 times better than it is without making any other changes. As always, you can let me know your thoughts. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone else you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Best of the Left.